Welcome to our second lecture in a semester-long series of lectures on Philadelphia and the Age of Revolution. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Mike Zuckerman. Um, I might choose to introduce Mike Zuckerman to you in the conventional sort of way. Uh, I could dutifully list his stellar educational pedigree, Penn and Harvard, uh, his many brilliant books and edited collections, Peaceable Kingdoms, New England Towns in the 18th Century, Friends and Neighbors, Group Life and American Society, and his impressive list of awards and prizes, uh, Phi Beta Kappa election as an undergrad, NEH, Guggenheim, Rockefeller, and Fulbright grants among those, his service to leading national organizations and societies, and his many appearances, and some of you have, may have seen him in these venues, as a historical expert on television, particularly public television. But then you can go to his website and find out all about these things for yourself. Moreover, it would be a great disservice to Mike, I think, to introduce him to you that way, Mike should be introduced to you instead another far more appealing and original way, the Zuckerman way. Here's what I mean. I had, of course, known Mike in his important scholarship before going to UPenn in 2002 as a postdoctoral fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies. But I didn't know him personally. In many ways, Mike made my year at the McNeil Center as rewarding as any, as, as any I have ha experienced in the profession to date, in part owing to his singular participation at McNeil Center gatherings. Almost inevitably, when a discussion needed to be moved along, or more typically, turned on its head, Mike was the one to do it. He would, with uncommon dexterity of wit, challenge a seemingly airtight assumption a speaker had made. In marvelously thoughtful, provocative, in almost always generous ways, he caused all of us to look at the topic anew. In short, his carefully constructed queries arrested more than one speaker, rendering them suddenly mute or otherwise tongue-twisted. I also came to know Mike through the fabulous salons that he would host around the city in the evenings, and to which I was fortunate enough to be invited on occasion. The introduction to this lawn and its featured speaker by Mike was almost always a thing to be savored even more so than the salon itself. More precisely, upon e emailing us to alert us to a forthcoming salon at which this or that noted American Studies scholar would share conversation about work in progress, Mike produced e-invitations that, not unlike the post style found in his books, evinced an eloquent appreciation for the speaker and his or her work. He made the guest in his or her work seemed so utterly fascinating and singular that I often wondered whether not a few of them quaked at the thought of actually having to live up to his introduction. Gratefully, at least a few of them did. His comments, queries, and insights about my own writing always improved it. His grace and ease and charm and passion for his craft inspire me. In short, Mike has more than lived up to the astounding first impression I had of him, gleaned from the introduction to Almost Chosen People, Oblique Biographies in the American Grain. In that book, he, in his own words, goes after the, quote, sacred cows of American uh, history in their own pastures, unquote. In chapters so wide-ranging as to treat Benjamin Franklin alongside Benjamin Spock and P.T. Barnum next to Ronald Reagan, Almost Chosen People confronts head-on some of our most hallowed assumptions about the making of America and Americans to lay bare in unprecedented ways the untold stories of and almost chosen American people. If you want to know how one of the most respected historians of his generation came to be a historian and not a novelist, a social and cultural historian of the first rank, 
I urge you to read the moving introduction to Almost Chosen People, a book that is on reserve for this course at the library, or this seminar. In that introduction, Mike writes the following about his decision to abandon his early ambition to become a novelist in favor of history and history writing. Quote, I felt a creative frenzy more compelling than any I had known in writing my novella. I was discovering that I could seize and be seized by history as utterly as I could take hold of fiction, and that I could say in history most of what I wanted to say in fiction. Indeed, I was just discovering that writing history was more challenging and more fun than writing novels. It sometimes took me where I had no notion of going. It occasionally even took me where I was disinclined to go. In my novellas, I drew on all I had known of the world. In historical studies, I had to learn more. I had to listen to voices and values that were not my own. It possessed an integrity and passion that required recognition um, if my research and writing were to be satisfying, unquote. Now, what I find intriguing about this honest and heartfelt confession is how Mike seems at once to draw distinctions between the writing practices of the novelist and the historian while suggesting the untenable nature of such distinctions in the hierarchization of history writing over creative fiction that he draws. For all of its presumed and newfound superiority, history can only say, quote, most of what Mike wanted to say in fiction, unquote, even if the novelist, in Mike's estimation, is required to learn less than the historian. Today, in any event, it gets, um, he gets to speak to us across these divides and producing an historical argument about a novel. Susanna Rosen, Charlotte Temple. And here you see the title page to the first American edition, 1794, published in Philadelphia. And that's a watercolor miniature of Rosen on to your right. First published in 1791 as Charlotte, A Tale of Truth, um, in England and then in the United States in 1794, Charlotte Temple is a tale about the eponymous figure's seduction and capture from a London boarding house by a British military officer and his transporta transportation to an abandonment of her in America where she dies after delivering their child. It was a wildly popular book in America and went through over 200 editions by the 19th century. Our first real blockbuster bestseller before Uncle Tom's Cabin. There was such a cult following of the novel in the 19th century that admirers of the tragic Charlotte flocked in the 1840s to see the fictional character's alleged graveside in Trinity Churchyard in New York, where none other than Alexander Hamilton, among other notables, are buried. This is Graceland stuff before Graceland. This past year, the vault stone was lifted to see if there was a vault underneath in order to discover whether it might, quote, yield clues. This is a, a blogger writing about his trip there. Yield clues to the true identity of the person buried there, unquote. Alas, no vault is there. And thus the mystery remains. Who, if anyone, was buried under the stone, if not the fictional Charlotte Temple? Mike Zuckerman has been turning over the vault stones of history for many years now to, in his compelling words, quote, dismantle history's myths, demystify its presumptions and platitudes, and restore the American people to their past. It is an outlandish and immature ambition. I cling to it still, unquote. Thus, we are thrilled and grateful that he's agreed to speak to us today about some of the mysteries he's lifted, if not from beneath the vault, then from the well-worn pages of Rosen's Charlotte Temple. Thank you.
Thank you, Sean. That was so lovely, and uh, and I'm so grateful. For, I'm so grateful for that that I won't even make any snotty comments about Penn State's pre-conference football schedule. I won't, I won't say Eastern Illinois. I won't talk about the Zips. I won't. I won't. Uh, I will say that if you do want to make the trip to Philadelphia, the Galileo exhibit is extraordinary. And, uh, and you, any of you who are interested in not just the history of science, but the, what was then, half a millennium ago, the total crossover between art and science, it's, it's an amazing exhibit. Uh, and all kinds of things about, that you may have wondered about, about the sighting of windows in cathedrals and stuff suddenly becomes clear for scientific, not for architectural reasons. Uh, okay. There are not many names we know of women in the years of the early republic, the age of the founding fathers. There's Betsy Ross, of course, and there's the war heroine Molly Pitcher, perhaps, if anyone still recites patriotic poetry in the schools. There are the presidential wives, Martha Washington and Abigail Adams and Dolly Madison. And then there is another, one more widely known and more deeply adored than all the others in her own time and all but forgotten in ours. <clears throat> Susanna Rousen, is it Rosen? Is that how it's pronounced? Okay. Susanna Rousen was by any measure one of the remarkable women of her age. She was a successful actress, educator, songwriter, editor, historian, poet, playwright, and the author of a number of pioneering textbooks for the young ladies of the school which she kept for a quarter of a century. Over and above all that, she wrote half a dozen novels, one of which assured her an imperishable importance in the history of American culture. Charlotte, A Tale of Truth, Charlotte Temple as it came to be called, was first published in 1791 in England to no notable acclaim or attention. It was republished in Philadelphia in 1794 and became overnight the best-selling novel of its day and of the next half century. It went through hundreds of editions. It endured dozens of abridgments and mutilations. It was the most popular book of its age and the best beloved besides. As the preachers of the period lamented, it came to replace the Bible on many a bed table. As the literary historians of later ages noted, it produced a passion unprecedented in American fiction. Legend maintained that the real-life model for the fictive heroine of Rousen's story lay buried in the cemetery of Trinity Church in New York City. There was not a shred of documentary evidence to support the legend, and scholars and skeptics of the early 19th century insisted on its implausibility. Yet pilgrims by the thousands made their way to the reputed gravesite, strewing flowers, leaving locks of hair, spreading ashes of long-treasured love letters. Alexander Hamilton and Robert Fulton were also buried in Trinity Churchyard. Their graves were all but ignored, while Charlotte's was garlanded with blossoms and watered with tears for generations. The makers of the modern canon of American literature scorned sentimental novels such as Charlotte Temple and scorned them all the more for the extravagant sentimental response they inspired. Until quite recently, most critics disdained to acknowledge even the existence, let alone the surpassing popularity of Charlotte and her sisters. While the few who paid 
them any mind, flailed away at them in furious condescension and arch invective. Leslie Fiedler called Rousen a third-rate sentimentalist, an enemy of psychology and technique, and a sworn foe of candor. He dismissed her masterwork as a masturbatory fantasy, an unwitting travesty, a book which barely climbs above the lower limits of literacy. Walter Wenska anointed Rousen the headmistress of the weepy creepy school of early American fiction. But that was then and this is now. And something strange has been happening lately. 50 years ago, Rousen was forgotten. Charlotte Temple had been out of print for decades. When it was recovered very late in the paperback revolution, it attracted no popular readers and only the most modest of academic audiences. Its publisher was an exceedingly obscure press, and no other publisher tried to muscle in on Charlotte's minuscule market. Today, that one forlorn edition is still in print, and so are two dozen others. Publishers such as Oxford and Penguin have their entries, with introductions by prominent scholars, and so does Modern Library, with an introduction by a major modern novelist. There is a Norton critical edition. There are audio cassettes, large print and easy to read volumes, and a study guide in Spanish. Charlotte has become canonical in the study of early American literature. All of this would be peculiar in and of itself. It is the more peculiar because Charlotte Temple is a very odd book. Charlotte was, like so many fictions of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, a novel of sensibility. Its heroine falls from virtue, wastes and dies and her sad fate is paraded as a warning to young women. It seems a stereotypic tale, and it has been discussed that way in a mounting literature of critical commentary in recent years. But Charlotte is, is far from the stock narrative of tear-jerk sentimentality that it seems. Everything is odd. The seducer is not at all a figure from central casting. The seduction itself is hard to figure. Blink and you missed it. <laughs> Conventional morality is mouthed by the villains. Feelings are fated to betrayal, yet Rousen affirms feelings anyway. In her preface, Rousen declared her, de her determination not to write a line that conveys a wrong idea to the head or a corrupt wish to the heart. She called her tale a trifling performance, yet proclaimed it preferable to the most elegant piece of the most elegant finished piece of literature whose tendency might deprave the heart or mislead the understanding. Nonetheless, the novel's narrative was about illicit trysts, kidnapping, carnality, abandonment, bastardy, and elopements. It, its plot turns on marriages for money, duels to the death, and deceit by the dozen. Its characters included kept women, mistresses, amoral adventurers, rakes and rotters. In her subtitle, Rousen assured readers that her account of seduction and its fatal consequences for the fallen woman was a tale of truth. And modern critics have assured their readers that Charlotte's descent from disobedience to deflowering to death was realistic enough in the new nation. An unwed mother would have been abandoned by her family, her church, and her society. Nonetheless, the novel's done, its given, the, premises of, the premise of its problematic, was very far from fact. In the early republic, 
premarital pregnancy rates were the highest in American history. Almost a third of all mothers conceived their first child out of wedlock, and very few of them were ruined for it. Most of them married the father of their child, and most of those who did not marry got financial support from the father by force of law. Women who had sex before marriage were simply too numerous to be stigmatized. They suffered no loss of social standing as long as they married before the child was actually born, and they were able to marry afterward even if they did give birth to a bastard. In its entirety, Charlotte has been taken as a type, an embodiment of a fictive formula. As one leading authority put it, it exhibited all the cliches of its sentimental genre, a young girl seduced and abandoned by a rakish young man, often of a higher social class. Nonetheless, neither Charlotte nor her young man fit that formula. Charlotte was young, to be sure, but she was not seduced in any conventional sense. She debated whether to keep her faithful appointment with the young man, and the decision to do so was hers. If she was seduced at all, she was seduced by her trusted teacher, Madame LaRue, who prodded her to go. And Charlotte was not abandoned in any conventional sense either. Her young man continued to provide for her support after he left her for his New York heiress. And to his dying day, he loved her more than his heiress. He himself was no rake. He was a man of sensibility. In his tormented way, he deserted Charlotte out of compassion for her because his father had convinced him that if he married for love rather than money, both he and his wife would be miserable. After Charlotte's death, he subsided into lifelong melancholia. And he was hardly of a higher social class than she. Her father was the son of an earl. Rousen's narrative achieved its ambiguous resonance in the space cleared by these departures from formulaic sentimentality. It was not a standard issue story of a powerful man exploiting a virtuous, vulnerable girl. It gains its perplexing power precisely in the arena defined by the spiritual symmetry of the two lovers. So, what do we have here? Is Charlotte just pious pornography? Is it running with the hare and hunting with the hounds? Was Rousen plagued by having to seek precisely what she was proud of having denied? Perhaps it is, and perhaps she was. But there is more than such sardonic simplification to the story. Almost a century ago, D.H. Lawrence warned us that if we would understand our early literature, we would have to attend to the tale, not the artist, since our early authors were all incorrigible darlings of duplicity. Fiedler argued adamantly that there is no duplicity in Charlotte Temple, but more recent critics have made clear that our early commercial writers, as much as our classic authors, moved in milieus of mendacity, and paradoxically, that the potboilers, as much as the classics, were much more than mere monuments to the invincible bad taste and ethical evasiveness of the early republic. Incomparably more complex, unruly, and even subversive energies were at play in them. From their earliest responses to Charlotte Temple, readers recognized that it exhibited intriguing tensions that could not be readily reconciled with Rousen's rhetorical assurances of morality and propriety. Over the course of the novel's long life and multitudinous reprintings, title page after title page trumpeted the author's ties with the new theater Philadelphia, 
though the author left the new theater in 1796, two years after the book was published, and the building itself burned to the ground in 1798. Given prevailing 19th century notions of women in the theater, such an association would only have conjured sensational assumptions entirely antithetical to the unsullied virtue that Rousen averred. Likewise, after the posthumous publication of a sequel to Charlotte, publishers routinely bound the two novels together in a single volume entitled Love and Romance, betraying an apprehension of their audience altogether at odds with the chaste youth Rousen explicitly addressed. The truth was that Rousen's readers were right to doubt her preface and proceed to her story. They were right to suspect her professions of propriety and plunge on into her provocative tale. I want to try to delineate their doubts and specify their suspicions. I want to try to elaborate dilemmas that they confronted, that Charlotte Temple helped them to confront from the time at the end of the 18th century when the American family and family capitalistic individualism took their modern form. I want to suggest that the American family, as it emerged in the new nation, a family epitomized in the marital ideal of affectionate union and conceived in conscious opposition to patriarchy, such a family was under siege from the start. I want to suggest that liberal individualism, as it gained ground in the early republic, an individualism that left adult males alone to try their own talents and attempt their own fortunes, an individualism that stripped away communal constraint and social support. Such an individualism frightened Americans from the first. Even in idealized versions, the sentimental family and liberal capitalism were worrisome institutions. The novels of sensibility that gave them forth and gave them that set them forth and gave them shape simultaneously betrayed the reservations that both authors and audiences harbored about their problematic prospect. And none of those novels did so more disturbingly or profoundly than Charlotte Temple, the deceptively simple story that captivated the American people through the last years of the 18th century and long into the 19th century besides. Rousen's great tale cannot be summarized as conventionally or as condescendingly as scholars have supposed. Swift, swift schematic sketches misconstrue the details of the story and miss completely its deeper dilemmas. The narrative actually finds its first extended focus not in Charlotte herself or her ill-fated affair with the young man, Lieutenant Montreville, but with the heroine's parents. Mr. Temple is the youngest son of an impecunious earl. When his older brother and sisters marry for money and misery, he resolves that he will never sacrifice internal happiness for outward show. He confines his expenses, seeks simple contentments, and devotes his days to making himself serviceable to his fellow creatures. In the course of his career in benevolence, he comes upon Captain Eldridge and the captain's devoted daughter, Lucy. The old soldier is wasting away in prison entombed for an unjust debt to an implacable foe who fancies Lucy for his mistress. Mr. Temple conceives a strong sympathy for the father and mortgages his own estate to free him. He conceives an even stronger affection for the daughter and spurns the very eligible Miss Weatherby to marry her. He, his beloved bride and her father, 
retire to a country cottage where through many years of uninterrupted felicity, they cast not a wish beyond the boundaries of their own tenement. It is the child of such parents whom the reader meets, as Montreville meets her, outside of Chichester boarding school where she has been sent to complete her education. She's 15 years old and she's, smitten, she's as smitten with the dashing officer as he is with her. Nonetheless, she knows she should not see him. He enlists Mademoiselle LaRue, a dissolute French teacher whom Charlotte mistakenly trusts, to convince the innocent girl to continue their clandestine meetings. At the fateful, final fateful moment, before Montreville and his unit must embark for America, Charlotte yields to his importunities, faints in his arms, and is borne off to the ship that awaits him. LaRue goes with them, ostensibly to marry Montreville's fellow officer, Belcourt, actually to return to the vortex of folly and dissipation. On the ship, she discards Belcourt for the very rich Colonel Creighton, whom she entices into a marriage which makes her a magnificent matron of New York society. By the time they arrive in New York, both Charlotte and Montreville are sorry for what they have done, though neither of them yet knows that Charlotte is pregnant. Montreville will not marry Charlotte because his father has pledged him to marry for money. Charlotte will not abandon Montreville for the opportunities of the new world because her ethical ideals require her to remain faithful to the bond she believes they vowed. In their attenuated way, they still love each other. Montreville meets Julia Franklin, a young woman of sufficient loveliness to arouse his desires and sufficient fortune to satisfy his father. He hesitates to court her on account of his lingering attachment to Charlotte until Belcourt persuades him deceitfully of Charlotte's perfidy. Still unable quite to quit the girl he believes has betrayed him, Montreville trusts his treacherous friend to take her the money she must have for her expenses at the farm where he has ensconced her. Belcourt, however, has designs of his own on Charlotte. Hoping to procure her favors by holding her financially dependent on him, he tells her nothing of Montreville's largesse. When he concludes that she will never consent to be his mistress, he makes off with the money. Seeing that Charlotte can no longer pay the rent, the farm wife sends the penniless pregnant girl packing. Charlotte makes her weakening way in a driving snowstorm to the city. She begs shelter from LaRue, but her former teacher, settled in splendor, refuses to admit her for fear of exposing her own unsavory past. A kindly servant takes pity on Charlotte, carries her to his poor little hovel, and sends for a surgeon. Charlotte gives birth to a daughter and lapses into delirium. Her father, who has at last learned of her precarious situation, arrives from England to find her dying. He forgives her before she expires. Montreville, tortured almost to madness when he learns of all this, begs Mr. Temple to kill him. Mr. Temple consigns the remorseful lieutenant to the lacerations of his conscience instead. Montreville avenges himself on Belcourt in a duel to the death. LaRue lives lavishly for some years, but finally offends Colonel Creighton beyond that decent man's endurance. She dies as dismally as Charlotte did. Montreville remains to the end of his life subject to severe fits of melancholy. In the mid 20th century, a tin pan alley tune at the top of the charts for months took the orthodoxy of that turgid time to its insipid apotheosis, proclaiming that love and marriage 
go together like a horse and carriage. In the late 18th century, and especially in Charlotte Temple, they did not. Love leveled a judgment on marriage, and marriage in return registered an adverse verdict on love. Judged by the standard of love, marriage all too often seemed a shabby, even a shameful thing, inimical to tenderness, mutuality, and all finer feelings. Charlotte's father exemplified the judgment of love on calculated couplings. He saw his elder brother made completely wretched by marrying a disagreeable woman whose fortune helped to prop the sinking dignity of the house, and he beheld his sisters legally prostituted to old, decrepit men whose titles gave them consequence in the eyes of the world and whose affluence rendered them splendidly miserable. Drawing his own conclusions from their fates, determining not to marry in the way of the world, Mr. Temple resolved rather to follow the feelings of his heart. But judged by the, standards of, the standard of marriage and the prudent preservation of lineage, love all too often seemed a vagabond, even a vagrant thing, inimical to interest, sense, and all possibility of permanence. Money, title, and social standing last. Even the finest feelings pass. Americans were, by the end of the 18th century, increasingly sensitive to these competing claims of passion and rationality. Secular intellectuals such as Thomas Jefferson composed poignant conversations between the head and the heart. Charles Brockton Brown devoted his profoundest fiction to a deep reconnaissance of the conflict. And religious leaders across the country pondered the diverging efficacies of appeals to people's emotions and intellect. Enlightened enthronement of rationality remained intact in the political speeches, sermons, school texts, and other authoritative expressions of the official culture. It even extorted a certain deference in the popular writings of the period, or at least in their introductions and their editorial asides. But once past these professions of propriety, the sentimental novels spread the romantic cult of sensibility as surely as the emergent evangelical denominations spread a new religion of the heart in the young republic. Almost all the novels which reached masses of Americans in the late 18th century focused in one way or another on the feverish sublimity of romantic love. In all of them, love was a wayward principle requiring restraint, but the languishing and sighing lover was nonetheless a figure who aroused a certain reverence. In the 19th century, Americans would waver between the old ways and the new, between accustomed canons of control and the tantalizing promise of release that the novels of the 1790s set before them. When they had to choose, in life, not in literature, they chose order. They preferred the advantages that prudent marriage could confer to the excitements that the sentimentalists promised. They consecrated soon enough a cult of true womanhood. Still, they could not stifle their longings for a larger freedom and a grander fulfillment, even as they tethered themselves to the regimen of marriage and maternity and true womanhood. They found those institutions inadequate to their emotional needs, inadequate, ironically, by the very standards they spurned. The novels of sensibility that poured from the 19th century presses voiced their plight. And Charlotte Temple sold better than any other American novel, not only in 1794, when so much seemed possible, but also over the next 60 years, when so much did not. Rousen framed her fictions 
as, a, as contests between fact and fancy, prudence and passion, realism and romanticism. But in Charlotte, she abandoned all pretense at equipoise. From the first, she made plain her preference for men and women who could commune sympathetically with others, and her contempt for those who could not. To the last, she sustained the same values as she moved toward her denouement. She even entitled a climactic chapter, which people void of feeling need not read. Charlotte's heroes and heroines were all people full of feeling. Its villains were without exception ensnared in their own icy rationality. Tears were for Rousen a test of character. Individuals who could cry were the ones she admired and meant her audience to, recall, to admire. Mr. Temple was her best character. He was moved to tears by the imprisoned soldier's story. He relieved his bursting heart by a gush of tears when he learned of Charlotte's elopement. He gave vent to his tears when he finally found out what had befallen his daughter in New York. He wept not from weakness, but from force of feeling. He broke down not from effeminacy, but precisely because he was a father and because the truly brave soul is tremblingly alive to the feelings of humanity. Rousen disdained strong silence as that torpor which the Stoic mistakes for philosophy. Montreville was not the man that Mr. Temple was, but he could cry too. Indeed, he would often weep over the grave of Charlotte Temple. So far from being a stock villain in a sentimental melodrama, he was, like Charlotte, a fool of feeling, more prey than predator. Others, such as Belcourt, took advantage of the tenderness of his heart and the humanity of his nature. Even after Montreville supposed that Charlotte had forfeited his, attention, his affections, he pledged that neither she nor their child would want anything. And to the very end, he thought of her with compassionate tenderness. His benevolence, as much as his aptitude for tears, established his affinity with the other good souls of the story and his distance from the dastards. Rousen's blackest villains, LaRue and Belcourt were the characters most caught up in calculated self-aggrandizement. LaRue might have been developed ambiguously like Montreville, for she was an epitome of the American entrepreneurial dream. She kept her eye always on the main chance, looked out always for number one. She seized her opportunities and took full advantage of them. But Rousen never admitted any admiration for the brilliance with which the French woman exploited the possibilities of the new world. She dismissed LaRue's rise from rags to riches as the work of a designing, artful, and selfish creature. She swore that for LaRue, the soul feels nothing but horror and contempt. Likewise, Belcourt might have been accorded a measure of respect for his economic achievements. He too arrived in America with next to nothing and secured himself a wife, a fine farm, and a life of luxury. But Rousen never credited his enterprise. She disdains his advancement as the ill-gotten gain of one willing to sacrifice the interest and happiness of all mankind for his own paltry pleasures. She scorns him as a man who minded not the miseries he inflicted on others so long as his own wishes, however extravagant, were gratified. Belcour's very name stood as Rousen's sardonic indictment of the man. So far from having a beautiful heart, he had no heart at all. Selfish passion had taken possession of his heart and stifled all finer emotions. 
Likewise, LaRue's name represented Rousen's ironic commentary on the woman. So far from personifying sorrow or regret, she was a woman without pity. Vaulting ambition and venomous calculation were her values. Rousen took such callous careerism as a metaphor for the dominion of the mind and scorned it exactly on that account. Even when it eventuated in economic success, it produced only a prosperity that rendered the heart impenetrable. Eagerness for affluence made people moral monsters, and their monstrousness inhered in their mindlessness of others, and their consuming adoration of the idol of self, darling self. But there was the rub. Rousen saw a specimen such as Belcour as a disgrace to humanity and manhood. Yet she allowed him to marry well and to live for years in luxury and lawless pleasure. She considered a creature such as LaRue, a figure to be detested and despised. Yet she let LaRue lead a life of splendor and affluence as Colonel Creighton's consort and as the universal favorite of New York society. Conversely, Rousen treated Charlotte as a paragon for whom the soul melts with sympathy. Yet she left the poor girl prey to sickness, grief, and penury as she sank unnoticed to the grave. It isn't easy to imagine what moral lessons Rousen thought she taught in such accounts of the ways of the world. Indeed, it is not easy to imagine what lessons of any sort she thought she could teach in a world where the unfeeling flourished. She understood herself as a moralist, a preceptress especially of young women, who would not write a word conducive to their corruption. But her fiction afforded her didactic her didactic drive, no traction. In the swamp of sensibility, she could not sustain any coherent ethical code, counsel. Her commitment to a cosmos of feeling fouled everything. And her genius was to multiply the ways in which it did so. Begin at an obvious beginning. Charlotte Temple held before young readers the inevitable anguish which awaited the sexual transgressor by thoughtless passion led astray. Yet. Even as it did, it insisted that anyone with a heart of sensibility would commiserate with her frail sister as a fellow creature whose errors ought to be forgotten. Indeed, it insisted that those who did offer such comfort would be ever honored and immortal, while those who uncharitably refused to overlook the errors or alleviate their, the miseries of their fellow creatures were not to look for mercy in the great day of retribution. Then deepen the dilemma a little. Rousen could require forgiveness for Charlotte and call down condemnation on those who refused it because she considered Charlotte's offense nothing more than a trespass of a conventional code. The girl had undone herself not because she sinned, but because she disgraced her friends and forfeited the good opinion of the world. Rousen had no great regard for that conventional code or that good opinion. Her best characters were all willing to offer Charlotte the balm of consolation, even if they had to defy the censure of fools and prudes to follow the impulse of their own generous heart. They were confident that that impulse to pity and forgive was the effusion of a heart that is truly virtuous. They were convinced that feelings that flew in the face of orthodox attitudes could have a value of their own which transcended public opinion and conventional morality. Reliance on feelings made the conventional morality that Rousen prof professed to teach 
unworthy of respect. Then deepen the dilemma a little more. See that such reliance on feelings exposed Rousen's heroes and heroines to her villains who looked after their own interests. Charlotte made blatant the susceptibility of Rousen's stalwarts of sensibility to betrayal by the likes of LaRue and Belcour. And the dilemma was acute because Rousen never recommended romantic self-reliance. Sensibility for her was about feeling for and feeling with. It was about emotional entanglement. It therefore entailed dependence, and dependence was dangerous. True friendship may have been the spring from whence flowed all the comforts of creation, but false friendships were the norm in Charlotte Temple and the motor that moved the narratives the novel's narrative. Captain Eldridge's imprisonment, Charlotte's seduction, and the dizzying descent that ensued were all propelled by failures of friendship. Montreville's best intentions were undone by his best friend, Belcour, and Charlotte's by her best friend, LaRue, and all under the mask of friendship. Men and women of sensibility were beset. Others were just not as gentle or generous as they. The world was a threatening place. It required a caution incompatible with the openness that Rousen idealized. It required a wariness inconsistent with the natural sincerity that she extolled. In that world, as it was, fervent feelings were as defenseless as they were desirable, and the sentimental project came ineluctably to an impasse. Then deepen the dilemma yet a little more. People of feeling could no more trust their own feelings than they could trust other people. Charlotte and Montreville alike sank themselves in ethical quagmires because they had tender hearts. They got into snarls of sensibility by their own benevolence. Charlotte kept her fateful meeting with Montreville on the day of their elopement because she was reluctant to be ungrateful to LaRue or to deceive the man who adored her. She was undone in the end by her unwillingness to make Montreville miserable. And Montreville plunged Charlotte into shame because he was unwilling to inflict on her the conjugal poverty that his father had warned would ensue if he did not marry for money. They could not trust their instincts because it was those very instincts that had betrayed them. It was the deceitfulness of her own heart that exposed Charlotte to Montreville's pledges of love. It was his deceitful heart that led him to seek her affections in the first place sensibility itself was treacherous. It left the young lovers caught in the coils of conflicted emotional obligations, and it was bound to do so. Bonds based so largely on sentiment were unlikely to endure. Charlotte realized as much after Montreville's first fervor for her had passed. A man of feeling would inevitably move on emotionally whenever his capricious heart grew weary in the convolutions of sensibility every case could be altered. Inconstancy itself could come full circle. When Montreville fell for his New York heiress, he dismissed his fondness for Charlotte as the momentary passion of desire and proclaimed his enchantment with Julia perpetual. He would love and revere her as long as he lived. Yet even on the eve of his marriage, he would have abandoned Julia for Charlotte if her pathetic letters to him had ever been suffered to reach him. And even after Charlotte's death, it was she, not Julia, whom he loved and revered most truly. And Charlotte could show herself every bit as fickle. When Mrs. Beecham asked her whether she would leave Montreville and return to her parents, 
if they were willing to have her back. She replied that she would, though to do it I were obliged to walk barefoot over a burning desert. Yet when she lay del delirious and dying, it was Montreville as much as her father for whom she raved incessantly. The ethos of feeling prized intense affections, but intense affections were by definition difficult if not impossible to sustain. There was no way to hold people to commitments when those commitments were founded only on present passion and immediate inclination, no matter how authentic at the moment. We of all people should know this. We are Charlotte's heirs. We make our marriages for love, for feeling, for sensibility, and we abandon them when love goes. And we believe that we should. Unlike Rousen, we do not disbelieve in marriage. Indeed, we believe mightily in it. We divorce and we remarry. And when we remarry, we do it for love all over again. 200 years ago, Rousen knew that that wouldn't work, that sensibility was insufficient. But 200 years ago, she intuited that nothing else would work either. Rhetorically, she recommended reason and religion and counseled filial duty. In the action of the novel, she could not sustain such advice. Charlotte had all the virtues, and still she fell. Mr. Temple's siblings in Montreville did as their fathers bid and came to bad ends. Mr. Temple defied his father and found happiness in his disobedience. Rousen never resolved the tensions in her novel. That may well be what makes it so irresistible. Rousen was not a subversive, but there was a subversive strain in her writing that allowed her to acquiesce in the requirements of the woman's role without permitting her to sustain her acquiescence for long. She was not really a liberator, but there was a recurrent tension in her work between the didactic moralism that she espoused self-consciously and the wish to be free that she exposed inadvertently. She was not a feminist in the sense that a few modern critics have claimed, but there was a fire in her narrative that flamed against restraints on women, even as she reached realistic accommodations to them. The one consistently radical strand in the fabric of her fiction came of the winding together of two threads of refusal. Rousen would not repudiate her commitment to the cult of sensibility, and she would not deny her conviction that the world as she knew it did not work for people of feeling. Charlotte was faithful to Montreville to the end, and she died for her fidelity. Montreville was benevolent to the last, and his good intentions were Charlotte's undoing. But the novel allowed no alternative. LaRue and Belcourt were the representatives of conventional morality, the friends who served in other sentimental novels as the ethical preceptors of the protagonists. In discrediting them, Rousen discredited the conventional morality that they spouted too. Lest the implication be lost, Rousen deepened her indictment in her characterization of the farm woman who turned Charlotte out of her lodging to die in childbirth in the fatal snowstorm. Rousen depicted her as a perfect poor Richard. She mouthed every bourgeois platitude about honesty, industry, and morality. But she really wanted to see Charlotte starve on the streets of the city, or better, prostitute herself to the soldiers stationed there. Whatever the insoluble dilemmas of sensibility, Rousen suggested that they were still preferable to the callous, self-satisfied commercial morality of the emerging middle class. 
Elson never tried to hide her disgust with a society in which fools and knaves rose to the very top, while patient merit sank to the opposite abyss, in which Charlotte fell for a single slip, while LaRue ascended despite dozens of delinquencies. As Ralston said in her own voice, "'Tis a very unfeeling world, and does not deserve half the blessings with a, which a bountiful providence showers upon it." It's fascinating to see that Ralston could confront so squarely this disjunction of sensibility in the world. It's immensely suggestive to think that Charlotte, the novel in which she caught the disconnection most compellingly, was of all her books the one that American audiences most loved. And it's tempting to speculate that that acknowledgment of incoherence was one condition of the acceptance of the schizophrenia of separate spheres, which American ideology enshrined in the 19th century. Sensibility, as Rousson saw so penetratingly, could not command the entirety of experience. It had to concede vast ranges of action and ideas to more masculine modes that were themselves growing increasingly impatient of emotion. As the 19th century wore on, American economic life became ever more rational, and American domestic life ever more sentimental. And as they did, they both doomed themselves to failure. Neither would ever be governed by norms that Americans could embrace. By the standard of sensibility, the public domain of commerce, industry, and finance would always seem a contaminated realm of corruption and competition from which women and children had to be kept. By criteria of calculation and competence, the private life of the family would always seem unduly effeminate. It was at the end of the 18th century that both American capitalism and the American family took their modern form. And Charlotte Temple suggests that both were under siege from the start, a family that left individuals isolated from the wider society and bound only by affectionate feelings, frightened Americans from the first. And so did an economy that left adult males alone to seek their fortunes. The sentimental family and liberal capitalism were worrisome institutions. The novels of sensibility that proliferated at the time that these constellations arose revealed the reservations that both authors and audiences harbored about their problematic prospect. And none of those novels did so more disturbingly or profoundly than Charlotte Temple. As Charlotte suggested, Americans would always be caught in domestic contradictions inherent in the dualisms of the larger culture. Love, marriage, and the modern family would always be problematic for Americans because they're based on feelings which we can neither rationalize nor resist. Rousson may have hoped to make morality out of all this, but like her audience, she knew better. Thank you. Sean has said we have time for questions. Yeah, so I think, what is our time at the moment? Yeah, we have, we have uh, plenty of questions. So we, we do have a mic that can be passed around if you have a question for Michael, and that way we can pick it up on the, on the audio as well. Questions for Mike? Hi, Mike. Hi, Carla. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Me too. I loved your talk. You, um, you alluded to the um, French name La Rue, and I was hoping you might 
just elucidate why it seems important for us to note that she's French Belcour also, Montravie, if we wish. <laughs> you know, um, would you, as a sort of early Republic historian, talk about the distrust of the French in the early Republican era? I don't have anything clever to say about the French connection. Um, I, I've struggled even with what the meaning of Montreville might be translated into English and can make no sardonic sense or straightforward sense or anything of that. I would welcome any help that you can well, give me on to ask. You must have had some. Tell me about Citizen Genet. Well, I mean, what lots of you know um, is that the Americans come out of the, the revolution uh, indebted to the French, disinclined to acknowledge their debt to the French. It's a very equivocal attitude that the Americans have toward the French. Clearly, the French are every bit as Catholic after the revolution as they were during it. And this is a Protestant country which is founded on anti-Catholicism. Uh, so they have a very hard time getting with the French. Primarily, the French don't have goods as good or as cheap as the English. So the Americans immediately fall back into all the trading patterns that they had had before the war, except that the English make it harder on them to try to punish them for their departure from the empire. Uh, so a lot of smuggling has to go on, a lot of illegality has to go on. But it's very clear that, uh, that the rest of continental Europe does not suddenly open to the American traders as they hoped it would. And the English trade is still, the, the English and the Caribbean trade is still the preponderance of their commerce in the world. Uh, and clearly, they are not learning to speak French. They're still speaking English. They do not revere French traditions and French liter literary heritage. They continue to love Shakespeare and all of that. Um, and so, so, so maybe, so is Rosen, in your, your view, tapping into the reading marketplace's anxiety about French? I don't people? think it's very much. I actually think the much more interesting relationship that's bizarre, that's baffling, is the relationship to England. Um, because if you think about it, what you've got in the narrative of Charlotte Temple is a disobedient, wayward child who deserts the family, deserts the parents, and comes to a horrible end for it. Um, and clearly, many, many people expected the American Revolution, even after it failed to end as badly as they expected it to, with the swift crushing of the American Rebellion uh, and the reinstatement of English authority, only much worse and much more savage. Uh, everybody, nearly everybody, still had dire predictions for how long this new republic could last. We know that it's gone on unabated for centuries. Uh, at the time, it seemed transparent that the component sections of the country would rip themselves apart, that New Englanders hated Southerners, Southerners hated New Englanders, nobody trusted anybody, there was no religious commonality among them, um, and so it would soon fall into a series of confederacies, uh, and then they'd be plucked off, divided, and conquered by the European powers, which continued to surround them. There's England to the north, France to the west, Spain and France to the, to the west and the south. Um, and so the, the expectation was that in the fullness of time and not a very great amount of time, 
the, the new nation would cease to be a new nation and would be rearranged by the European powers. So a great sense of fragility for Americans in the early years of the new nation. Uh, and here's this novel coming along saying, see what happens when you leave the good parents and, uh, and strike out on your own? You come to this pitiful end soon enough. Um, and here is this here is this novel which says something which should be immensely comforting to the British, and they haven't the time of day for it. It falls flat in its first publication. It gets published in the United States where it should go no place, where the symbolic implications should be disastrous. And it's picked up and it's adored and it sells in dozens of editions right from the start. So the publishers back in England think, back in Britain think, ah, we just need to get going on this, crack it up and, uh, and it'll sell. Falls like a lead balloon all over again. It never sells an iota in England. It never ceases to sell in the United States. So that seems to me a bewildering kind of thing all in its own right. Um, because the parable is so obviously that this is the fate of folks who declare their independence from, from their parents, kids who declare their independence from their parents. Yeah? That, that was a really superb paper. Um, I, I've always avoided teaching Charlotte Temple in favor of the coquette, but, um, oh, do I have to? Um, anyway. Um, but you've made me hungry to go back oh, to, cool. to Charlotte Temple. So I confess you. that when I read it the first time, I, my feeling was, is that all there is? Is that all there is, yeah. <laughs> what was there about this? So I've been struggling to make sense of what there is in this book, which seems unbelievably slight and trifling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is what I've come up with so far. But lis listening to you talk, and particularly in response to Carla's question, it strikes me that the critique of the book, as you've made it clear to me, is really even maybe deeper. Cool, um, tell me. Because um, I'm thinking about, this This is something I've written on, but um, that, that I've called the federalization of affect in, in the 18th century. But there was a way that the Articles of Confederation, for instance, talked repeatedly about the friendship between states as a way to authorize the establishment of, internet, of interstate law. Mm -hmm. And then in adapting the Constitution, the legal language carried over, but the language of friendship dropped out. But all over this period, there's the language, I mean, Hamilton talks about it repeatedly in The Federalist, about the need of the state to saturate the people's hearts to, mm -hmm. to be in their affective relation. And there, there's the idea of the incorporation of relationality to the interest of the state that, mm -hmm. that was everywhere mm -hmm. in this period. So I'm thinking that part of the reason, I mean, thinking about why England would never have been interested in the book, but Americans would have, is that the critique, it strikes me, is. It, I sort of follow you through the to the end, but it strikes me that the book may be really oriented less about the the loss of something called feeling that may have preceded this moment and and was being kind of bastardized by these these kind of bourgeois inventions that you were pointing to, 
than the way that the state necessitated the creation of that kind of feeling in order to appropriate it um, towards citizenship. So that what I wonder if what the novel is registering is the kind of um, resilient attachment to a kind of pre-federalized notion of social organization that, that's really much, it, it's much broader across the, the literature of that period. I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I guess that what I would throw back at you is, is given, if we take that line of argument, then for all that the necessity for friendship mm -hmm. pervaded the, the operation of the state, mm -hmm. what Rousen declares is the utter unlikelihood of any success of such friendship. Mm -hmm. And so this is yet another, maybe that's what you were saying, I'm sorry if I misunderstood. Or, or maybe you were saying that this just deepens mm -hmm. the bafflement that I feel mm -hmm. on why this novel should have played to American audiences. Or, or to that if what they needed for their political prospect mm -hmm. was a pervasive friendship, mm -hmm. a kind of amity either directed among constellations of states or toward this new federal entity. Um, if Rousen is your guide, Rousen's telling you it ain't going to happen. Rousen's telling you there's no prospect of such amity. Amity is doomed. Amity will always be defeated by the self-seeking. Amity will always be defeated by the people who are calculating and, uh, and looking out for number one. And the more that you depend on amity, the more weak and vulnerable you're going to be, and the more exploited you're going to be soon enough. Maybe. I, I, I have a more hopeful <laughs> sense of it, I think, that, than that. But, um, but yes, I think that's what I was saying. OK. Cool. I like that. I mean, I don't like it that it makes my puzzle even worse, <laughs> but I like it. Thank you very much. I also very much enjoyed what you had to say. As someone who is very uh, unacquainted with um, the literature of that time, I'm more interested from the psychological point of view and the sociological point of view. So what happened to her? You know, if she was uh, aware of this conflict and could define the tensions as well as she did in many levels, as you described, what was her life like? <laughs> Did she commit herself to anyone? Did she follow her feelings? Did she... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing because your question, put more maliciously, put with more hostility, is the reaction of my female students to this novel overwhelmingly. I didn't even read it. They, <laughs> yeah. my, my female students, the answer to your question about what did she do, how did she live, is zilch. She had no life. She lands in that farmhouse, and all that happens to her is her baby grows. That is it. She means I'm at the office. Oh, to Rousen. I'm sorry. OK. Um, Rousen goes on to, a, to the career that I very quickly outlined. Um, she, um, she moves from Philadelphia to Boston. 
Um, she becomes the proprietor. She supports herself because her husband is a deadbeat and worse. Um, and it's a sordid story that's not just his drunkenness and his incessant inability to raise to make any money, but also that, uh, that he's constantly cavorting with other women. Uh, he flaunts them, brings them home to their own house. He brings the son uh, that he conceives with one of these women to live with them, and he leaves Susanna to raise this baby, uh, which is the mark of his, in, you know, the emblem of his infidelity. Um, so he's a no good Nick. He's, he's a bad piece of work. Uh, she's got to support herself because he's never going to. And the way she figures out to support herself is to run a school for young women whose families can pay through the nose. So it's one of the first of the elite academies of, uh, of America. And she does this for about 25 years. Um, and in order to do that, she has to purge herself of a great deal of the subversive energy of the early writing of the 1790s. Uh, so she becomes very much more respectable in her later life uh, because she's not going to get the patronage of these affluent parents uh, for their children, for their daughters, if she isn't a paragon of propriety. And, uh, and so she sets out to remake herself uh, as somebody. And she becomes an enormous innovator in the course of this. She writes some of the first textbooks in, uh, in American history produced by Americans uh, for their children, for their school children, because she's got no materials to, to use in her schools. Um, and, uh, and she's got one of the longest running academies in all of early America. She's quite a businesswoman. She's, uh, she's quite an innovator. Uh, she continues to turn out novels. She continues to turn out poetry. Uh, it's much more muted. It's much more domesticated than what she'd been doing before. Actually, I just wanted to say that I thought it was really fascinating and interesting to note that um, she didn't receive, I mean, at least according to the introduction, she didn't receive a penny of the royalties from this novel. And yet she, I mean, it also says that she was, she was, she was the one who supported um, her husband, his sister, his illegitimate son, and two ado adopted children. So I think it's so fascinating in this novel of, you know, that touches on all these issues of sentimentality that this itself was a labor of love. I mean, it's how it's She didn't intend it to be a labor of love. <laughs> it just turned out that way. She had no real notion coming. She's, she's the most fascinating transatlantic character. She is truly a transatlantic character. She is a global citizen, at least of the Anglo-American world, like nobody else for a long time to come. She's born and lives her first maybe 10 years in England. But her father, who's a military officer, gets stationed like Montreville in New York. Um, so she spends her years from about 10 to about 20 in New York. The revolution by now is brewing. He's called home because it won't do to have troops exposed in the New World. So she spends the next period of her life, another dozen years or so in England. When the revolution is over, she's now 
out on her own. She's well, not on her own. She's married to this bum, but uh, but she's working as an actress. That's money that she can support herself by, um, and that's what's keeping the family afloat through this time. Uh, but in England, if you write a novel and it sells, there are all kinds of legal protections um, for royalties for authors. In the United States, which is a country of crooks and <laughs> scammers <laughs> and, uh, and folks looking to, to make an easy buck, there are a million ways around copyright laws. Um, hardly anybody pays royalties when they can get away without. Um, it's really hard to collect anything on your sales. Um, so the publisher who first publishes her book, Matthew Carey, um, is a reputable publisher and no doubt paid her royalties. But all of those other publishers who leaped into the breach and whom nobody could stop from publishing pirated editions make all the money on this thing. So 200 editions, one of them by Matthew Carey, the other 199 non-income yielding. She's not, that's why she takes up running a school. She's never going to make money in the United States on, uh, on, on writing books. And nobody in the early republic can make a living writing books. Time for maybe one or two more questions. I was just wondering um, what George Washington thought of the novel, especially as the first president, because he was a big uh, believer in like the stoic, disinterested, disinterested virtue, and uh, just like the the one of the themes in the novel is like bad things seem to happen to good people, and how would he react to that as the first president? Well, unless somebody knows better. Um, my sense is Washington never encountered this novel. Um, certainly, there's nothing that I've ever seen that, that said that, uh, that he commented on the novel. Um, so we're in this much more interesting realm. I wish that he had said something, but no doubt it would be dreary and uninteresting. Whereas we can, we can speculate a little bit on, uh, on what he might have said. Had he ever known of it, had he ever read it, had he ever been moved to comment on it? Uh, my guess is that to the extent that he understood it, he'd have quite understood that it was directed against people like him. Uh, old stone face, up on his pedestal, maintaining his perfect virtue, um, and conquering his every impulse to passion and, uh, and, and self-indulgence. Um, and I think that, uh, that he'd, have, he'd have been better than the Belcours and the, uh, and, and the LaRue's of the world. He was not absolutely wedded to self-seeking, to profiteering. Um, he was concerned for the public interest. But Rousen doesn't care about the public interest. That's an axis that the Founding Fathers agitated themselves about. And there's this endless tension among the political leaders of the new republic of something that one could call benevolence and something else that one could call liberal self-interest. Um, that's simply not the axis that Rousin is concerned about. That's an axis that concerns public life. And the founding fathers are overwhelmingly invested in public life. 
And Ralston just doesn't care about public life. Um, Ralston is entirely concerned with private individuals, with feelings, with psychology, with the inner life. Uh, and the only public life that she ever attends to is the public life of profiteering, is the public life of exploiting, of ripping other people off, of taking advantage for one's own material benefit. Um, so that there's an unvirtuous selfishness, and then there's a virtue. It's the same tension. It's exactly the same tension as the people concerns about public life. It's the question of self versus the question of orientation outward to others. Uh, but sensibility is about orientation to others precisely in the sense that you can't have feelings except with others. You can't have an affective life, an intensely emotional life, if you're going to be cooped up inside yourself. And so, uh, there are some romantic individualists who attend purely to the inner life, who, and they're the predominant romantics of the 19th century. But Rousen's cult of sensibility is utterly absorbed in others. And one must be with others to have that kind of sensibility that she's talking about. I'm going to allow the one last question. But before I do that, I do wanted to remind you. Sure. Uh, right we there. got two more questions. OK. Oh, no, I'm I just well, you got one wanted question to be sure you here. saw. I think what we would do is the rest of you might want to come up and talk to, to Mike after because we're running over the time. Oh, sorry. OK. Um, but uh, next week, Benjamin Franklin, Educational Liberalism, Carl Mulford, will, will be delivering a lecture, our, my colleague. Um, so I invite you all to come back for that. I want to thank you for your participation today. Thank Mike for his great generosity. And, uh, and allow the one, one last question I said I would get in, and then we'll call it a day and give you your deserved round of applause. Sorry. Um, Really, really quickly, how would you compare this to a novel like Tessa the D'Urbervilles? It has a quite similar plot. I mean, she gets knocked up and then abandoned and, you know, falls in love and then he leaves her too. And it, I don't know. I, they seem similar to me, but yet the endings seem unbalanced. I mean, in this one, from what you said, there really is no resolution. She doesn't get any kind of revenge. She just kind of sinks into oblivion, whereas Tess actually fights back and... There's, there's no fight in Charlotte whatsoever. This is what I started to say to you, my, my female students tear their hair out about. She will not act in her own behalf. She will not see she's got a losing situation. She needs to take it in hand. She will not strike out on her own. She just lapses into death. Um, so in effect, she's dead long before she dies. Totally unlike Tess. With that encouraging note. <laughs> <laughs>